History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia, episode 107, Hetairoi Monster. Last time we watched as Alexander III of Macedon invaded Anatolia at the head of the largest Greek army to ever breach the Persian Empire. He led his troops to the Battle of the Granicus, where the new Macedonian army faced off with the assembled forces of most of the regional satraps and not only won, but utterly shattered their capacity to resist the invasion. Of the major Persian commanders, only Memnon of Rhodes managed to retain any semblance of command in the west, and the majority of major Persian leaders on the battlefield didn't even escape with their lives. The Macedonians proceeded to divide and conquer, with the veteran general Parmenion heading east to subdue inland Phrygia, and Alexander himself sweeping through the Ionian cities all but unopposed, routing Memnon out of Miletus and pursuing him on to the Carian capital of Halicarnassus. While en route to Halicarnassus, Alexander and a small contingent diverted to visit with Queen Ada, the disputed satrap queen of the province, who had been besieged in the city of Alinda for the better part of a decade before Alexander's arrival. Her nephew, Orontabates, had recalled his troops to defend Halicarnassus, which allowed Ada to meet with Alexander uncontested and come to a favorable agreement for both of them. Realistically, Halicarnassus was going to fall. There simply wasn't time for Darius III and the royal army to assemble and travel all the way to Caria before Orontabates and Memnon ran out of supplies. So the elderly and childless queen in exile formally adopted Alexander himself on the condition that once Halicarnassus fell, she would resume her position as Queen of Caria, as a Macedonian vassal rather than a Persian one. Then, at the end of her natural life, formal direct rule of the province would pass to Alexander. The king agreed, and he took some of Ada's loyalists with him. They rendezvoused with the rest of the Macedonian army outside of Halicarnassus. By the time he reached the city, Alexander had siege engines prepared and reinforcements from Europe. The Carian capital had a deep, wide, dry moat running around its walls. In principle, this prevented any siege engines like towers or battering rams from approaching the city, and it forced an attacking army to climb in and out to reach the walls with arrows raining down on them the whole time. So Alexander ordered his men to fill it in. Sure, they'd be under fire doing that too, but once it was filled, the siege towers could turn the tables. 
Gargantuan rolling buildings allowed the Macedonians to fire down on the Halicarnassian walls with more new toys. The Gastrophates, an early form of the crossbow, that was supposed to be mounted on a stand and used from these sorts of towers. And the Oxubeles, an oversized version of the Gastrophates that functioned as a sort of proto-ballista hurling massive bolts that could do serious damage to whole buildings, let alone people. Crossbolts and arrows now rained down on Halicarnassus, and the catapults began pounding away at the walls. On the first night after this assault began, a small force of Halicarnassians crept out under cover of dark and set fire to the towers, but were intercepted by a Macedonian garrison. 174 Halicarnassians died in the attempt, including a Macedonian noble and brother of Alexander's general Amyntas, who had joined Memnon's mercenary company. And so it went. For three days. Alexander deployed towers, Memnon set them alight. The Macedonians breached the walls, the Halicarnassians had already stationed a force large enough to defend from the other side. In the midst of all this, a conspiracy was unfolding in the Macedonian camp. You'll notice a pattern in the coming episodes, that while Alexander was extremely popular with his men, there were constantly elements of the Macedonian nobility who really wanted to oust him or rein him in. In this case, it was actually another man named Alexander, as if the names aren't confusing enough in this period. This is Alexander Lunkestios, whose brother had briefly been implicated in the plot to murder Philip II, but was pardoned by King Alexander. Well, in the course of the initial invasion of Anatolia a few years earlier, one of Alexander's officers called Amyntas, because the Macedonians only have like seven names, had been persuaded to turn coat and join the Persians as a military advisor, providing insight into Macedonian tactics and which other officers might betray their king. He identified Alexander Lincestios, now commander of the Companion Cavalry with King Alexander's army, as a potential asset for the Persians. Darius III dispatched one of his king's eyes, the semi-independent spies and viceroys who monitored the provinces, out to Anatolia on the basis of meeting with Satrap Atazues in Greater Phrygia in order to coordinate the Persian response, a relatively banal military matter given the circumstances. In reality, this king's eye Cecines was going to meet with Lincesteos to arrange three things. A plot to assassinate the Macedonian king, a payment of 1,000 talents or 33 tons of gold, and plans to install Alexander Lincesteos as the new king of Macedon following his success. It was an ambitious plan one that would have potentially made the Persian Empire larger than it had ever been before, with the entire Macedonian Empire as its vassal. 
unfortunately for Cecines, he was traveling through central Anatolia, where Parmenion was rapidly conquering territory in the highlands, and the king's eye was captured by Macedonian scouts, brought before Parmenion, and forced to confess his plans. This was far too sensitive a matter to entrust to a large group of common soldiers, or put into writing and risk being captured. Parmenion assigned his most trusted messenger to the task of memorizing and delivering a warning to King Alexander verbatim. The exact message is not documented, of course, but we can assume it went something like, I may only tell this to the king himself. Alexander Lincestios is a traitor and an assassin. According to legend, on the same morning that this messenger set off to Halicarnassus, King Alexander was woken up and spent his early morning being harassed by a swallow that kept flying around his tent and landing on his head. Taking this as an omen, the king asked one of his soothsayers about it, who interpreted the little bird as a warning that Alexander was about to be betrayed by a friend. Sure enough, Parmenion's messenger arrived, and King Alexander was forced to detain Alexander Lincestaos. However, the traitor was not executed. Politically, an execution was actually the worse option. Lincestaos' sister was married to Antipater, the nobleman currently ruling as Alexander's regent back in Macedon. Killing the brother-in-law of the man actually ruling the kingdom was a bad move. So Alexander Lincestaos was bound and imprisoned for the remainder of the campaign. On the third day outside Halicarnassus, the Macedonians forced their way through the outer walls and Memnon ordered his troops to retreat to the older inner city. They repeated the process, and about one week into the siege, Alexander was making progress there as well. He personally commanded a section of the army assaulting a portion of the walls that had started to collapse. There were already gaps, but too small for a full army to attack the city, but not too small for them to attack out of the city. Simultaneously, three things began to happen. Halicarnassus's defenders began hurling torches down from the walls and onto the Macedonian siege engines, igniting them. Soldiers began rushing out of the gaps in the wall, where Alexander was in command, and the city's most heavily defended gate, under siege by Alexander's close friend and bodyguard Ptolemy, was flung open, so another sortie emerged to attack the Macedonians. How's that for a movie? Siege towers burning and collapsing in the background, a sudden and unexpected melee at the gates, and desperate men charging out from the holes in their own defenses to attack the enemy king. Alexander whirled around and began shouting orders and directing his artillery to concentrate fire on the particularly collapsed sections of wall. Huge rocks soaring, oxybalase bolts cracking through the bricks and mortar. Swords and spears clashed and men screamed and the world shook and the wall came down. 
the defenders, in one last attempt to throw back the Macedonian invader, were largely crushed under their own fortifications. Meanwhile, Arian reports that Ptolemy's battle at the gate was the most gruesome event of the whole siege. To facilitate their offensive, the Halicarnassians had laid wooden planks across an unfilled section of moat. Ptolemy forced them to rout so quickly that so many men were on the planks at once that they just collapsed. This ditch was mercifully shallower than the one at the outer wall, but Arian tells us that the men who fell through the boards were trampled by their comrades in the moat, not crushed by others following on them, trampled underfoot at ground level in a trench filled with bodies. Once they were trampled by their comrades, Ptolemy led the Macedonians across the new-formed bridge of corpses, hoping to storm the gates before they swung shut. Instead, they swung shut before all of the Halicarnassians could even get through, leaving them pinned up against the doors of their city as the Macedonian infantry bore down on them. Stabbing like fish in a barrel, they were massacred. Memnon and Orontobates looked out of the city and saw Alexander's forces starting to move through the collapsed wall and seeing cracks forming in other sections. Halicarnassus was lost, and they had no way to run far enough. The city's Persian garrison and Greek mercenaries were ordered to fall back to the citadel in the center of town, but not before igniting the inner city themselves was a little late for the scorched earth tactic, but that was Memnon's best idea. The district closest to the walls were burned along with all the Persian armories and counter-siege engines as a means to rob the Macedonians of plundered equipment and slow their advance through the city streets. The inhabitants be damned the commanders needed to escape. In the morning, Alexander surveyed the situation ordered additional sections of the city that contained worthwhile loot or could resist to be burned as well, and arranged for the dead to be buried. He then left Ptolemy and Queen Ada in command of the ruins to rout out Memnon and Orontobates. Stone construction had mostly spared the public buildings like her brother's tomb, and you have to imagine that Ada relished the opportunity to besiege her traitorous nephew. But her city was in ashes. Alexander just took the bulk of the army and headed inland. Despite another siege, Memnon and Orontobates actually managed to slip through the blockade once again and fled out to sea, with Memnon taking command of the remaining Persian navy and Orontobates finding a ship to go south to Phoenicia, where he would eventually head back to the royal court and warn Darius III of further unprecedented Macedonian success. Memnon assembled his forces, pulling ships from Egypt, Phoenicia, and Cyprus to launch the counterstrike. He made contact with King Agis III of Sparta 
and Athens' current demagogue of the day, Demosthenes. A new alliance of Athens and Sparta began making plans to revolt against Macedonian hegemony in Greece, while Memnon set out to pick his way through Macedon's supply lines to aid the Greek rebels. This plot had the potential to utterly destroy Alexander's plans for advancing further south. He was still reliant on ever-extending supply lines that reached all the way back to Macedon via the Hellespont, and the Greek subjects in the Macedonian army would almost certainly mutiny if their homelands went into rebellion. Memnon, though, he didn't make it past the island of Lesbos. He was able to retake Chios for the empire by supporting an oligarchic coup there, but Lesbos put up more resistance. Memnon managed to capture most of the island himself, but fell ill and died due to some infection or camp plague during the siege of the Macedonian-held city of Mytilene. Darius III appointed Memnon's brother-in-law, Pharnabazus III, last of the Pharnacid satraps to take command of the navy and harass the Macedonian supply lines. Pharnabazus oversaw the conquest of Mytilene, expelling the Macedonian garrison there and installing a Persian-allied Greek tyrant to govern Lesbos before setting out toward the Hellespont. And we will make it back to the Persian fleet, but for now, we're going to take a quick break and then get back to the ongoing conquest. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Back on dry land, spring turned to summer of 334, and the Macedonian storm in Anatolia had become a flood. Alexander, Parmenion, and Lysimachus may each nominally have commanded their own sections of the army in southern, central, and western Anatolia, respectively, but Parmenion and Alexander's forces rapidly split apart as they entered the more sparsely populated interior, 
dealing with villages, towns, and tribes, rather than cities and ports. Unlike the large cities that had already fallen, these places were not Greek. They didn't see their own cultural cousins coming to free them, or a change in ruler without much change in the system. The Phrygians just saw a foreign invader come to raid and pillage. However, they were also not as wealthy, prepared, or experienced as the coastal defenders. And one by one, those that resisted were crushed by the Macedonians. Alexander himself took the southmost route, the one with the most true cities, leading his troops out of Caria and into Lycia. I've mentioned before that over the centuries, this small coastal region of southern Anatolia had grown more and more Greek-like, a phenomenon that after this time will be known as Hellenization. Alexander personally negotiated a surrender from one of them, and then used that agreement as the template for all of Lycia, taking the region largely unopposed. Undoubtedly, many small towns that couldn't hope to stand against the Macedonians in eastern Caria and greater Phrygia did the same. He stopped briefly to make arrangements in some notable cities throughout the region, names you might remember like Xanthos, but nothing eventful happened until Alexander reached the northeastern edge of Lycia, where it intersected with Pisidia, that ever-rebellious region that gave Darius II and Artaxerxes II on and off trouble. Here, Alexander found the Lycian city of Phaselis, which was locked in a low-grade war of raids and skirmishes with the Pisidians just over the border. Remember, even within the Persian Empire, small local disputes were often handled with arms. Alexander led the Lycians alongside his own troops to assault a Pisidian fort overlooking Phaselis, capturing it and beginning to plan for a campaign into Pisidia and neighboring Pamphylia. We've encountered these regions before on the podcast. They were sparsely inhabited by largely tribal herding cultures, and Alexander unsurprisingly had very little trouble with his conquests here. It's a litany of individual tribes and villages punctuated by the occasional raid on the Macedonian camp or javelin-hurling skirmish. If you want to hear about what that looked like, go back and listen to the episodes about Xenophon and the 10,000 Greek mercenaries. It's basically that, but on the offensive. The only hiccup Alexander encountered in this phase of his advance actually came in the rear. The city of Aspendos, on the border between Lycia and Pamphylia, had surrendered willingly, but suddenly refused to pay the tribute or provide the horses to the Macedonian army, which they had initially agreed to do. So presumably groaning and swearing and a bit baffled that this one little city thought it could resist, Alexander briefly turned his men around, marched back, besieged and sacked Aspendos, and forced them to comply. After Aspendos, it was getting closer to autumn, and before long, winter. So Alexander made a beeline for Greater Phrygia 
where he would rendezvous with Parmenion and make plans to establish winter quarters for the army. The next phase of the campaign involved too many mountain passes to realistically plan for a winter war. Alexander pressed through Pisidia with some more skirmishes that may as well not have happened for all they accomplished, and then into the southern portion of Greater Phrygia. Of course, Alexander did not know this, but he was entering some very old lands now. A thousand years earlier, this region had been a stronghold of the Hittite Empire, and some of the cities there had been fortified against invaders, successfully or not, for longer than Alexander's people could accurately describe their own history. So naturally, he had to have it. Soon after reaching the region, Alexander besieged Kelenai, a city centered on a steep hillside that was a little more than a heavily fortified boulder. It was great for defense, but bad for long-term siege. The Macedonian king had no compunction against waiting, and his siege engines far outmatched the defenses of the Phrygian citadel. Kelenai fell, opening the path for Alexander to march almost all the way back to the Hellespont, to the provincial capital of Gordian, a city whose citadel had stood for 2,000 years already by the time the Macedonians got there. Antigonus, up until now a commander of the Greek subjects in Alexander's army, was appointed as the Macedonian satrap of Phrygia and left to solidify their role in the surrounding area from a base in Kelenai while Alexander moved on to Gordian. This was Antigonus Monophthalmos, meaning the one-eyed, who had lost his left eye while serving under Philip II. Once again, Alexander does his very best to leave the older generation behind in positions of regional command and move on without them. However, he was still reuniting with Parmenion, who returned to Alexander's side just outside Gordian, reuniting the full offensive force of the Macedonian army, and the city promptly surrendered, allowing the Macedonians in and giving them ease of access to the neighboring ports. Alexander declared that all his men who had recently been married, meaning those younger men who had left home to serve in the Macedonian army but had no sons, would go home for some leave and to make some heirs so this war wouldn't end their family lines or depopulate their country. Honestly, it was kind of a sound policy. He also received a letter from Athens, asking Alexander to release the Athenian mercenaries in Persian service who had been taken captive. Alexander wrote a letter back that basically said, No, I'm still at war, they are not trustworthy, they are prisoners until I have won. Meanwhile, the Persian navy in the Aegean was experiencing some extreme whiplash. They had just captured Lesbos, basically on the doorstep to the Hellespont, when Pharnabazus III got word that Alexander had swept through southern Anatolia and was basically tracing the outline of the Taurus Mountains. That meant he was within striking distance of Cilicia, 
the Persian navy's primary port in the region, and the Cilician Gates, one of the easily fortified passes that Darius III was planning to use when he launched the counteroffensive the next spring. So Pharnabazus split the fleet, and personally turned south all the way back to Lycia to try and break up some of Alexander's control there. Arian doesn't specify, but this may explain why Aspendos rebelled against Alexander. Pharnabazus's co-commander, Atophrodates, likely grandson of the earlier satrap by the same name, continued on toward the Hellespont to sever the Macedonian supply lines with an attack in the city of Tenedos. He seized the city with relative ease, as the Macedonians had minimal naval defenses this far in their rear, and destroyed two stele in the city. One was a stone pillar inscribed with a copy of the Treaty of Surrender Tenedos had just signed with Alexander. Okay, that one makes sense. Obviously, you'd symbolically abolish that. But then Atophrodates noticed another treaty inscribed on a pillar. Older and weathered. A copy of the king's peace that had been erected 53 years earlier. That, too, was pulled down a message that there would be no peaceful compromise this time around. Realizing the growing threat of renewed Persian naval activity, Antipater, the Macedonian regent, made an executive decision. He reassembled their own fleet, scrambled the ships back into the Aegean, with directions to hunt down any major Persian detachments as quickly as possible. Bear in mind that we are not talking about the full 300-strong Persian navy anymore. They were down to maybe a hundred ships, if that. The Macedonians began hunting at sea, picking off groups of 10 to 15 ships across the northeastern Aegean, and each loss was a devastating blow. Before long, Atophrodates and Pharnabazus simply did not have enough triremes to stand against their enemies, and had to retire to Phoenicia for the winter. Back north, Alexander settled into winter quarters at Gordian, planning to sit by the fire, drink copious amounts of wine as was his custom, plan new and greater victories for the spring, and work on some puzzles. Now, some historians cast doubt on this part of the story because it involves some particularly convenient prophecy. But I like it, and honestly, 99% of the story is totally plausible. Some people try to cast additional aspersions on this because the traditional telling in our sources talk a lot about Greek gods in a Phrygian story, but come on, people. If they can call Anahita Aphrodite, they can call some Phrygian storm god Zeus. It's fine. According to myth, the city of Gordian was founded by a man named Gordius, which sounds silly on its face, but, uh, get used to smug rulers naming places after themselves. It's gonna be a whole thing for the next, well, actually for the rest of the series. Anyway, Gordius was actually a poor farmer, 
out plowing his fields with an ox yoked to the plow when an eagle landed on the rope holding the ox to the cart. A good omen from Zeus, but indicating what, Gordius did not know. Well, time went by, Gordius had a son named Midas, and the country was gripped by strife. But an oracle of Phrygian Zeus told the people that their savior would come on a wagon. Well, sure enough, Midas came in with his mother and father on that old wagon drawn by the old ox and the old rope. This Midas was declared king, and though he was also famous for his love of gold in mythology, that is not the important detail here. Instead, Midas dedicated that old wagon and yoke to the temple, where an oracle proclaimed that whoever could unwind the knot holding the yoke and the wagon together would be destined to become king of all Asia. This is the only really dubious part of the story. That is a very Greek idea, king of all Asia. People living in inland Anatolia and further east had a better understanding that all Asia wasn't really a single thing that had ever been united before the Achaemenids forced it all together. If this was really a myth before Alexander, I'd guess that it was something like King of All Phrygia, or perhaps it was an older story and a sort of King Arthur legend. Whoever can pull the knot apart is the true heir to the Hittites, or something like that, and it morphed over time. Whatever the case, Alexander and his advisors puzzled over this knot that winter, and one of two stories played out. Arian tells us the boring version, in which one of the Macedonian nobles notices, apparently the first person to ever do so, that the knotted rope was not actually the thing holding the wagon and the yoke together but a reinforced wrapping around an iron bolt. So he pulled out the bolt, and all Alexander had to do was give a little tug for the whole setup to come apart. Lame. Courteous Justin and Aelian all report the more fun version, which, though more dramatic, is way more in keeping with Alexander's overall personality anyway. After days of puzzling over this knot, he realized there was only one way to become king of all Asia. He drew his sword and brought it down on the centuries-old wood and rope of the Gordian knot, slicing it clean through the ropes and thus untangling the yoke from the cart. When spring came, Alexander roused his forces from the winter quarters around Gordian. The recently married men returned from their shore leave along with several thousand reinforcements from Greece. And as the campaign season approached, Alexander and his generals took stock of the situation. They had held most of the prestigious and powerful parts of Anatolia for almost a full year without incident. The Persian navy in the Aegean had been utterly crushed. Now was the time to strike further into Persian territory. 
And this is the point where Alexander III of Macedon really earns his epithet and secured his place in history as Alexandros Megas. Alexander Magnus. Alexander the Great. Like Cyrus or Darius before him, he was now among the great conquerors of the ancient world. In fact, Alexander could have stopped there, established a firm border on the Halys River and the Taurus Mountains, and essentially merged the long-forgotten Lydian kingdom from before Cyrus the Great's time with his father's empire. Alexander would still have been the most successful conqueror the Greek world ever produced. But there was absolutely nothing holding him back in spring of 333. So the Macedonian army departed in full force from Gordian and made for Ankira, the modern Turkish capital of Ankara, and crossed the Halys River. For the Greco-Macedonian perspective, this was a monumental step, pushing back against the borders established by Cyrus 200 years earlier. Alexander made the reasonable, but ultimately very consequential decision to ignore Bithynia and Armenia for the time being. There was little either satrapy could do on their own, and rather than getting bogged down in rugged terrain for minimal return, Alexander took his army south through Paphlagonia and Cappadocia. In theory, large parts of both regions remained unconquered. However, none of our sources describe any conflict there in detail. At most, Curtius says they were subdued and leaves it at that. These were sparsely populated and poor regions. They just couldn't hope to stand against the invaders for long, and many towns would just have surrendered. Moving south through the Taurus Mountains, the Macedonian army came to a fork in the road. The eastern path wound through the hills and mountains as they descended into highlands and eventually the plains of northern Mesopotamia. The western path would take them to the eastern side of the Cilician Gates. The easily defended pass between the small coastal satrapy in southern Anatolia and northwestern Syria. Ambitious though he may have been, Alexander was no fool. Left unattended, Cilicia would become a rallying point for Persian loyalists. So they turned southwest and followed the road not deeper into Achaemenid territory, but westward through the gates and into the Cilician plain. They were surprised to find the pass undefended. But first, Macedonian scouts and then Cilician envoys quickly explained the situation. Satrap Arsimes, only recently appointed to his position, had intended to stand and fight against Alexander himself, but the Cilician militia was plagued with deserters after each new tale of Alexander's rapidly growing list of victories. Ultimately, Arsimes and the Persian administrators loaded up as much wealth as they could and sailed out to Phoenicia to begin their trip back toward Babylon, where they would rendezvous with Darius III. As a result, Alexander took the Cilician capital of Tarsus unopposed, 
and added yet another province to his empire. Despite accomplishing very little so far in the campaign season, the Macedonians took an extended break in Cilicia. It was a good opportunity to redistribute officers and resources or solidify their defenses for Anatolia now that the whole region was under unbroken Macedonian rule. Their stay in Tarsus was further extended by the first of Alexander's many near-death experiences. Depending on the source cited by the Alexandrian authors, he may have fallen from a horse, taken ill, simply become exhausted from the relentless progress, or, in the most popular telling, taken an ill-advised bath in the Kidnos River, which ran right through Tarsus. Regardless of exactly which scenario it was, the Macedonian monarch became violently ill, racked with muscle cramps, a high fever, and insomnia. The story of Alexander bathing in the Kidnos does seem likely. The water would have been chilled with snowmelt from the surrounding mountains, and his symptoms sound a lot like acute pneumonia. Only one of the physicians in his entourage dared to treat him, as they all feared that failure would result in their own executions. No source specifies what exactly the treatment was, but Arian describes it as a fast-acting medicine that induced instant relief, but also violent seizures. Whatever it was, it worked, and Alexander recovered. However, the Macedonians were finally not the only army on the move. The Akitu festival in Babylon that year would have occurred alongside another grand event. Darius III finally setting out at the head of a massive royal army that had slowly grown outside the city for the past year. Curtius and Arian actually swap places in terms of reliability when describing Darius's forces. Usually the most fantastical of the Alexandrian histories, Curtius puts the Persian host at 250,000 men, while Arian, normally considered most reliable, describes a gargantuan 600,000. Modern scholars consider both exaggerated, but can't really agree on what an accurate estimate would be. Methods including calculations based on the descriptions of the camp, the battle lines, the units, and the places the Persian army was drawn from range from as small as 25,000 to as many as 100,000. The more reliable figure for the Macedonians typically places them around 37,000 strong at this point. As with the Battle of Plataea, when Xerxes' invasion force was forced out of Greece, it is possible, based on modern estimates, that Darius III's army was actually smaller than Alexander's. In November of 334, Darius encamped at a town in western Syria called Sokoi. Situated on an open plain, the ideal sort of place to take advantage of Persian archers, slingers, and cavalry, and a place where the infantry-heavy Macedonians would be at a disadvantage. However, 
Alexander had absolutely no intention of giving his opponent the pleasure of choosing his own battlefield. Instead, after recovering from his illness, Alexander sent contingents of the Macedonian army all over Cilicia to secure their position. Some cities tried to put up a little resistance to occupation, but were quickly defeated and most simply surrendered. Macedonian garrisons were installed at key defensive positions, including a force under Parmenion sent to occupy the Cilician gates and hold them against a potential Persian attack. Alexander wanted to lure Darius III through the mountains and fight him on the narrower lowlands of Cilicia, where Persian maneuverability would be limited. And Darius took the bait. As he prepared to lead the army north from Sokoi into Cilicia, Greco-Macedonian exiles in the Persian camp offered words of warning that none of the Persian satraps and nobles were willing to say. The Greeks had been fighting the Macedonian army for decades. Some of them were even Macedonian veterans themselves who opposed Alexander personally. The exact warnings and who exactly delivered them change from telling to telling, but they all amount to don't underestimate him. These people might seem uncivilized, but they are in fact some of the best, most experienced warriors in the world with an extremely intelligent officer corps. If you do not plan carefully, they will win. Diodorus and Curtius both attribute this to an Athenian named Charidemus. Arian and Plutarch give the speech to the Macedonian turncoat Amyntas. On one hand, this plays into the trope of the Greek advisor giving great advice, as written by an author with the benefit of hindsight. On the other hand, this would have been a totally realistic warning from the many Greek exiles in the Persian camp, and may have been voiced to Darius or his officers on multiple occasions. Curtius provides two explanations for why the Greeks' advice may have been ignored by the great king. One is ridiculous. Curtius says that Darius III refused to break with Persian tradition, which had always been to fight en masse as one huge horde. This is simply not true. We've seen many examples of the Persian army breaking up for a tactical advantage. Most recently in Artaxerxes III's reconquest of Egypt, and most famously in the Battle of Thermopylae. The second, and much more likely explanation is simply that Darius III was getting desperate. He needed to beat this invasion. The Cilician Gates were just the largest of a few passes into the mountains that lined Cilicia. The Syrian Gates, also known as the Belen Pass, provided access from the south, and they were closest to Sokoi. Alexander personally occupied a town nearby with the bulk of his army, likely planning to ambush the Persians as they traveled through the narrow passage. He was also within striking distance of the so-called Pillars of Jonah, named for the biblical prophet, which are an even narrower and more treacherous road than the other passes. Darius had solid intelligence, though, and wouldn't be lured into any of the well-defended routes into Cilicia, 
even if they were more convenient. Instead, he went to the Amanian Gates, also known as the Basse Pass, much further north, allowing the Persian army to sweep up around the mountain fortresses Alexander had already garrisoned and enter the province behind the Macedonian line. When news of this maneuver reached Alexander, he couldn't believe it. Thinking it must be some kind of trick, he dispatched a group of his companion cavalry to board a ship and sail along the southern coast of Cilicia until they reached Issus, a port city that was acting as their mass field hospital for the sick and wounded Macedonian soldiers. These scouts never even made it into the harbor. Issus was situated on a deep inlet, and as their ship approached, the Hetairoi saw Persian soldiers and banners in the city, and the mass graves of the Macedonian soldiers who had been left there. Before Alexander could even react, the Persians had swept through the eastern side of Cilicia and reached the coast. When his scouts returned, Alexander ordered his forces to prepare to move out and meet Darius on the road recalling as many garrisons as he could muster to bolster his numbers now that he was being forced to face the full might of a Persian royal army on open ground. They got surprisingly close to Issus before the Macedonian scouts reported that, as night fell, it looked like the whole plain burst into flames, with a wide and dispersed Persian encampment along the river Pinaros just outside the city. Alexander commanded his forces to halt where they were and pitched their own camp for the night as well, giving him time to consult his officers in a war council. Parmenion correctly noted that the current location was just about as good a position as they were likely to find. Ridges and hills from the Cilician highlands hemmed in the area north of the Gulf of Issus, meaning it would be difficult for Darius to field his army to its full potential, at least partially nullifying the Persian numerical advantage. Both sides went to bed that night with the smoke of enemy campfires wafting over the horizon, and when they woke up, both kings ordered their soldiers into battle formation. And both thought, this might be the end. Not because either expected to lose, but because both were hoping they'd be able to kill the other and end this whole war right there in Cilicia. The Pinaris is a relatively short river, running from the surrounding hills into the Gulf of Issus. The Persians formed up in their standard battle array on the northwestern bank. Darius rode in the royal war chariot, as was tradition, surrounded by a small coterie of noble cavalry. To his left was first a block of Greek mercenaries and other hoplite-style heavy infantry, and then lightly armed skirmishers recruited from around the empire's central provinces. They were well suited to that position as the terrain became more uneven at the edge of the surrounding hills. The Persian right was a mere image, another block of heavy infantry, closest to the king, flanked by lightly armed archers and skirmishers, with the addition of the Persian cavalry concentrated to the left of the light infantry, closest to the coastline under the command of Rio Mithres. 
the only survivor of the Battle of the Granicus who had made it back to court. Various infantry units were arranged into both a front and rear line, pulled from far and wide, but notably, some were refugee soldiers who had retreated from the Macedonian conquest of Greater Phrygia alongside their satrap, Adazues, and others, likely among the heavy infantry, were Egyptian pikemen who had come with their satrap Sabakis. Another unit of hoplites were returning Cilician loyalists under the command of the recently exiled satrap Arsimis, and a further detachment of light infantry was sent up into the hills to circumvent the Macedonian lines. As we've seen in the past, this was a pretty typical and effective formation for two Persian, or generally West Asian, armies facing one another. However, the Macedonians were working from an entirely different manual. Instead of positioning himself directly opposite Darius, Alexander and his Hatairoi and the Podromoi took a position on the Macedonian right. To their right, a contingent of Macedonian archers guarded the flank, while the Macedonian center was held by Alexander's royal guard, the hoplite-style hypospists. With a bristling wall of Pezhatyroi forming their Macedonian phalanx on the left, under the command of Craterus, followed by more archers, while Parmenian took command of the left flank with their Greek subject cavalry. Another small collection of light infantry and Pezhatyroi stood back as a reserve unit. Overall, it was a similar setup to the Battle of the Granicus. And so it began. The Persian cavalry struck first, charging across the shallow river to immediately disrupt Parmenion and the Macedonians' subject cavalry from the outset. In a counter-move, the leftmost section of the Macedonian phalanx charged as well, fording the river and clambering up the steep western bank only to encounter both minor fortifications and obstacles as they went, followed by the spears of the Persian heavy infantry. Craterus ultimately had to recall his infantry and give up this assault, as Parmenian and his subject cavalry were forced back away from the river and into a retreat as the Persian cavalry pushed behind the Macedonian lines. Had this arm of the Macedonian cavalry lost cohesion, it might have destroyed their whole army. But Parmenion's forces managed to keep themselves together and lured their Persian counterparts further away from the Macedonian rear with some light countercharges followed by further retreats. Even so, it was not looking good for Macedon. Watching all of this from their right, Alexander himself took drastic action. He grabbed a spear and shield and rushed over to the Hippospists. Having the leader himself in the soldiers' midst is always good for morale, and the Macedonian king led his guardsmen in a last-ditch effort to cross the Pidarus and punch a hole in the Persian left. Quite probably to the shock of all, including Alexander, this actually worked. The Hippospists made it up onto level ground to lock in a deathmatch with their Persian counterparts, which they won. 
This branch of the Persian heavy infantry began to break apart and retreat, while the Hippospists pressed their advantage. Alexander slipped out of the lines, ran back across the river, and mounted his horse. He climbed up onto Bucephalus, a huge black stallion that was supposedly untamable until at 13 years old, Alexander had won the horse over. Now, a decade later, King Alexander prepared to ride his trusty steed into the battle of their lives. And I do want you to have a clear picture of this, because I think some of the portrayals that lean more toward glorifying Alexander the Great brush off some of the weirder details of this image in favor of the gallant 23-year-old monarch and his great black warhorse. Not only was Bucephalus a Thessalian horse, noted for being a smaller breed than the Nisaean horses preferred by the Persians, but at this moment, in the Battle of Issus, Alexander is probably halfway between infantry and cavalry dress, gods only know which spear he's actually holding, sopping wet from wading through a river twice, and already exhausted from leading an infantry charge. But he was their king, and he hadn't failed them yet, so the Hetairoi rallied around Alexander and followed him across the Pedaris in yet another assault on the Persian lines, while the Podromoi and the Macedonian reserve infantry swung in an about-face to counter the Persian archers that had just arrived on the hillside overlooking the Macedonian rear. This was the death blow. With the Hippospists, and then a further contingent of the main phalanx already fighting their way through the Persian heavy infantry, Alexander's heavy cavalry charge shattered the lines, allowing horsemen to ride through the resulting carnage, as Alexander and his closest advisors went on the hunt. The Macedonian king was looking for his only equal on the battlefield, Darius III himself. Alexander caught sight of the king of kings trying to regain command of his fracturing army from the royal chariot and charged in a diagonal swath through the Persian infantry. Darius and his mounted bodyguard saw the Macedonians before they hit, and turned to flee, with the outer ranks of the Persian guard acting as a screen to cover their own king's retreat. Alexander wanted to pursue and capture or kill Darius before he could get away, but now, seeing the battlefield from Darius's perspective, he realized just how much trouble Parmenion was still in over on the Macedonian left. So Alexander gave up the chase and turned his own cavalry back across the river to assist the subject cavalry against the Persian horse, forcing them to turn and follow their monarch back toward the Ammonic Gate and out of Cilicia. With their cavalry and great king gone, and much of their central infantry already fleeing, the Persian army dissolved. It was another victory for Alexander and another catastrophic defeat for Darius III. Half or more of the Persian army was dead, wounded, or captured. While Macedon only suffered about 5,000 casualties of their 37,000 total soldiers. On top of that, 
now functionally deep within Macedonian territory, Darius and his army were forced to abandon their encampment, leaving the plunder and trophies of war to the Macedonian invaders. Adding grievous insult to massive injury, many Persian notables were killed in action, including all three satraps noted to participate in the battle. Arsimis of Cilicia and Adazues of Greater Phrygia fell, which sounded the death knell for hopes of a Caymanid restoration and resistance in either of their provinces. And the death of Sabakis of Egypt, along with many of his troops, threatened the stability of the already fragile Nile Valley once again. Priomithres II, potentially a veteran of every major conflict in the last 30 years, was killed when Alexander brought his forces back around to assist Parmenion. Unfortunately for the King of Kings, he had taken the Northern Pass, but Alexander still held the Syrian gates, and now had a direct, undefended path toward the Persian rear camp at Sokoi. A Macedonian force was dispatched immediately to occupy the city, seize the Persian war treasury, and capture the royal family. Prince Ochus, Princess Drapetis, Princess Statera, the Younger, Queen Statera, the Elder, and Queen Mother Sisigambis were all captured. Meanwhile, Darius III was forced to flee east with the shattered remains of his army. He simply couldn't stop Alexander, and Darius's departure gave Macedon free reign over Syria, the Levant, and the road to Egypt. So next time, we will pick up with Alexander Triumphant, and the beginning of his southward campaign. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon. Also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia.